Visit Wales are proud to sponsor the RHS Gardening Podcast. To find out more about Wales's beautiful and historic gardens, go to visitwales.com slash gardens. Hello and welcome back to the RHS Gardening Podcast, sponsored by Visit Wales. Every fortnight, we bring you a mixture of features and discussions exploring every aspect of gardening. Plant care, garden design, pest control, container ideas and growing your own fruit and vegetables. Plus expert seasonal advice on what you should be doing in your garden right now. I'm Sean Thomas, Garden Visits Editor of the RHS Monthly Magazine for Members, The Garden. Coming up in this edition, a preview of the highlights of this year's RHS Flower Shows, spring plant advice from some of the UK's top specialist nurseries and our RHS experts tackle your seasonal gardening problems. Now, regular listeners know that members of the advisory team join us once a month to answer your gardening questions. The RHS advisory service is free for all RHS members, but they also run drop-in advice surgeries at RHS shows where any show visitor can come and ask their gardening questions. They can also show the team samples or photos of problematic plants, pests or plant diseases they need help with. This week, the advice team was at the Great London Plant Fair. We joined them to hear some of the questions they were tackling. I'm Jenny Bowden and I'm one of the horticultural advisors at RHS Garden Wisley. So we have a question here about moss on the lawn, but this is a little unusual in that uh, Julian Ranby from Billingham, who's asking the question, wants to know how he can encourage it. Uh, he's given up the battle with it and has decided that he's, if you can't beat them, join them. So he's wondering how he can encourage it. Um, what you could do is use Roundup uh, on, on it. Uh, Roundup uh, doesn't affect the moss, so that would actually kill any remaining lawn that is left. Um, moss likes quite a compacted soil, so um, by all means walk on it um, and don't aerate it. So really it's almost looking at the advice for how to get rid of moss in the garden and, and do the complete opposite. So shade is obviously something that moss loves, so um, um, any overhanging trees, it's going to love it. Um, and don't feed it. It's the complete opposite of any advice how to get rid of moss. We've got an inquiry here from Caroline Woods. What's the best way to protect my lilies and other young plants from slugs? Last year they were decimated. Well, it's a perennial problem, isn't it? Slugs again, slugs again. Um, the best way to deal with slugs is on a, on a variety of levels. So um, you can get organic slug pellets these days, which are very effective. And... Um, the most, one of the most ecologically sound ways of controlling slugs is to use nematodes which are watered onto the soil and they will see off young snails as well as, as slugs um, so that, that, that would be a good choice as well What would you do Tony? Of course there is the, the option of hand picking them off on a wet evening but not perhaps uh, very uh, desirable um, Another option, obviously people are less keen to use chemicals and so on, but there is now an organic treatment for slugs, uh, a bait based on ferrous phosphate, ferrous obviously being a metal and phosphate uh, a fertiliser. It seems to be pretty effective and as uh, far as we know, it doesn't seem to have any adverse effect on wildlife. So that's another option. And what about the wool? 
Have you seen these wool products, these wool mats that uh, that, that prevent the, they, they, the slugs dislike the texture and then it breaks down and becomes a fertiliser in the soil? Have you come across those, Tony? Well, I, I haven't used them myself, but there's a whole range of aggregates and material which is supposed to be sharp and deter slugs and snails. Um, having seen snails at the side of a pebble-dashed house, I'm always very dubious that uh, these uh, barriers are that effective. But uh, they're, they're worth trying. You, you have to trial these things, and, and some people find they work very effectively and others less so. I think much more likely, um, people will probably have heard for snails of uh, beer traps, although, of course, they prefer lager, and uh, that's another option there. And again, that can be highly effective if you're trying to get on top of a snail problem in particular. Can you tell me when the best time to move a hellebore is, it's, as it's currently flowering? Right, this is a really interesting question because a lot of people would say, oh, in the spring when they're in flower. And that was the traditional time. When nurseries grew plants in the open ground, uh, especially hellebore specialists would uh, divide the plants at flowering time and send off the divisions to their customers. And, of course, they'd come with a sample or two of the flowers so you could be sure you were getting what you uh, had ordered. In fact, the best time for dividing hellebores is later in the autumn, September time, and at that time, certainly in terms of propagation and so on, what the commercial growers often do, they lift their plants and they divide them. And you'll find that uh, hellebores don't like being divided. They, they have quite prongy roots and so on. They like to be left in a situation. But eventually, you may have to divide a plant. But if you lift it then, don't over-divide it. You'll probably have to use a sharp going to divide it I literally just want to oh, move it oh you just want to move it well, it's the same, yeah. same, same principle um, have your planting hole ready mm. lift the plant as uh, intact as you can and uh, get it into the ground as quickly as possible they have very prongy roots relatively few fibrous roots so this is why as with peonies and similar sorts of plants they don't transplant that readily but if you do it in September water it well in it, the first spring the flowering won't be too special but after that it should be fine I'll just wait ages then. <laughs> Thanks very much. Bye-bye. I just wondered what to do with an um, apple tree and plum tree to stop things crawling up the... I heard that you should dig around the base and maybe put some tape around it to stop things crawling up. Right. Well, I'm not so sure about digging around the base, but uh, typically uh, you can get what are called grease bands, which are put around the trunk to stop a pest called winter moth, which is a flightless moth and it literally climbs up the, the trunk of the tree. Uh, now, that will help with pests like that. I guess it might also discourage earwigs to some extent, uh, although with particularly uh, apples, the main problem, certainly in recent years, seems to be coddling moth, and unfortunately, that's a, a moth that can fly. So if you want to deal with that, you're going to have to actually spray the, the, the trees in uh, spring after they've flowered. And on plums, the other pests that have again been very problematical in recent times is the plum moth which again can quite devastate plum crops but once again the one that climbs into every plum and leads it leaves its well, babies that's it you with plums you cut the plum open there's a, yeah. a little maggot inside yeah. there and I say numbers can vary from year to year sometimes you hardly find it at all but other years the crop on a tree can be totally devastated but but once again uh, you will come across reference to pheromone traps which are these triangular uh, yellow traps which can be put in trees you might be lucky you know two or three of them in a tree may give you some protection but again commercial growers only really use those traps to indicate the optimum time to actually spray 
But uh, as I say, if you've got a large number of trees, the pheromone trap, as I say, it might be more of an exercise in optimism than uh, a realistic solution to the control of the plum moth. I'm just building a stumpery in Cheshire. What would I grow in a stumpery? Well, uh, typically it tends to be hostas and ferns. Um, within the sort of nooks and crannies you fill with soil. Uh, ideally, they're not, it's possible, sort of woodland-type mix, plenty of organic matter. It's in the glader area, that's the whole idea. It's in the woodland glade and building it in the glader area. So oh, is it? Yes, yeah. right, yes, yeah. So, yes, certainly today a whole host of ferns and uh, hostas would typically be the choice there. You might add... Uh, so long as they say you've got a soil that's not going to dry out, some of the larger primulas and so on will add a bit of extra colour. It's quite shaded. I mean, we'll, we'll oh, yes, in, they'll, they'll be fine so long as they get a, a bit of sun. Yeah. And uh, you can also things like epimediums, which will uh, they're broadly evergreen. They produce uh, uh, nice sort of spurred or uh, uh, star-shaped flowers. And again, very good for p- perhaps planting the odd nook and cranny or just round the outside or whatever. Of course, you want to attract wildlife as well. You don't completely smother it with earth and plants. No, so one's got to balance it a bit. No, no. I mean, typically, I mean, the stumps themselves are as much a feature as the actual plants themselves. So it's a case of uh, what I would do, uh, having sort of you know, constructed it, is especially if you buy plants will be in containers, um, I would just place them in various locations over the feature and stand back a bit, and it's often a technique a lot of very well-known garden designers use. They don't work from detailed plans, they place them out and then stand back. You can't visualise how it's going to even look. But it's a really great feature, and it will attract a whole range of wildlife. Um, Some that you'll be very keen on, and perhaps others like slugs and snails, which you'll be less keen on. But that's just one of those things. uh, Any sort of wild... They're not good for hostas, though. The problem is... They're uh, not, but you might find that, to say, I'd go for some of the larger hostas. Whenever you're looking for specialist plants and so on, it it pays to actually go to some of the specialist nurseries, which you can access on the the RHS website via the plant finder. But there's certainly some very large uh, hostas, some in substance, one that will grow to about a metre, just over three feet. Also another large one, similar sort of dimension, Cybaldiana. Um, Big Daddy, very large leaves, perhaps not quite so high, a couple of uh, feet, uh, 60 centimetres. But again, as the name implies, it's a a plant that you won't just walk straight by. It makes a big impact. And then something like uh, Grossa Regal, which grows a bit higher, 70 centimetres, 30 inches, and that is a much more upright plant. And again, with hostas, there's this great variation, not only in size of leaf and size of plant, but also in the form upright, spreading. And say, if you can keep the slugs and snails from them, fantastic plants, especially for slightly moister, shadier situations. Raspberry canes, on our allotment site, we're losing them. I've looked on all sorts of websites and gardening books, but I'm not sure that I've found the answer. The leaves, sort of mid-season, start to shrivel up, and the, the, the cane dies, and eventually it's rotted at the roots. Now, is this cane blight? Um, I don't think it's cane blight, because that tends to manifest itself literally on the canes. It could be a, a root disease called phytophthora, and... Um, uh, as an RHS member, the simplest thing would be to lift one or two of these plants, 
um, and actually package them up and send them off to Wisley where our plant pathologists can check them out in the laboratory, if necessary, incubate the roots and see what they can identify. If it is something like Phytophthora, there will not be a, tr a treatment for it. It sometimes goes by the common name of just root rot. It will be favoured by wet soil conditions. And obviously we've had a run of some very wet uh, summers and winters. Raspberries like plenty of moisture, but they don't like water logging. Um, that would, I think, be the most likely, but I say for some certainty there, if we have some samples, we can actually check it out. Um. In the gale of 87, we had some Espalier Cox's apple trees on our fence. Um, they, they didn't quite come down, but they never produced after that. And we thought we'd dug them up. And within the last, say, four or five years, I've got these shoots coming up that definitely apple. Would they have come from the roots? Will they ever flower? Haven't flowered yet. Or should I try and dig them up? Well, the, apples are grafted onto a rootstock. Yes, yeah, and uh, that's yeah, it. Almost yeah. certainly your coxes would have been grafted onto some rootstock. Yes. Uh, often they're semi-dwarfing rootstocks to keep yes. the trees a little bit small. But to answer your question, um, they may flower, but uh, they're not going to, or very unlikely to produce anything in the way of worthwhile fruit. And if it were me, I would actually be uh, killing them. Um, now, woody weeds can be quite difficult to treat but there are various formulations of, of glyphosate and perhaps one that you might try it's a product called Roundup Tree Stump and Root Killer okay uh, now that's best applied in the autumn just follow the instructions on the uh, the manufacturer's instructions it's very effective but I say just cutting it back or whatever it'll keep growing back and even if you just allowed it to grow, it wouldn't necessarily produce a very ornamental plant. Very simple question. In my London flat, I've got a balcony which is south southwest facing. I'm looking for a plant to go against that wall. Right, and are you looking for a climber? Possibly, yes. Right. Um, fairly hot. I mean, as I say, it's, it's sheltered from the east, looking south southwest. Right. Okay, first of all, uh, as well as the choice of plant being important, so is the pot. You want a good-sized pot, reasonably deep, and ideally, if the balcony is sufficiently robust, you want to use a John Innes number no. three potting okay. compost. Um, if there was a question about the strength of the balcony, you could mix multi-purpose into that. Now, for choice of climber, sunny wall, lots, but what I would go for would be perhaps one of the jasmines, yeah. which will flower from midsummer all the way through into autumn. What is in the garden this month? The jasmine they've advertised. Did you see that one? Oh, yes. Jasmine, uh, Jasminum uh, mesnii, which is um, it's a yellow-flowered jasmine. It's not perhaps the, the hardiest of jasmine, but on a sheltered balcony like we're talking about here, yeah. uh, if you're taken by that plant, then well, yes, it is a, a choice plant and certainly um, very good. But um, again, what I'm going to do is I'm going to print something off the RHS website which will a profile on jasmines because there's quite a selection of them and uh, you will find that a good garden centre will have them. There's also a closely related plant, um, Trichelospermum jasminoides, which we were discussing with another uh, member a few minutes ago. And again, that's uh, again a evergreen, and uh, it's just like jasmine produces scented flowers. An evergreen, of course. Yeah. And uh, then the jasmine will flower for how long? It will be months, from midsummer all the way through. Summer. Yes, yes, typically, typically. Some are more fine. vigorous than others, I guess, are they? Some are more, are you? They are, yes, but uh, on that size wall there, I would just basically put in a bit of trellis behind, filling the full height of the wall, 
and then tie the growth in, um, ideally not straight up, sort of fan it out, let it fill that trellis right to the top. And then the simplest thing is you just clip around the edges and if growth, too much growth coming out, you can tuck it into the trellis. But if there's too much then, just trim it back a little bit. But that's all you need it to do. It doesn't suffer by virtue of trimming, does it? No, no, you would do that probably um, late winter would be ideal. But it, it will be, I say, they will vary in vigour. But most jasmines, if they like the situation, will do very well. And something we've forgotten about, of course, that compost in the container, it's good for a few weeks or months. But really, I'd uh, add to that some controlled-release fertiliser granules each year. You can get them from garden centres or DIY superstores. They, they won't be one for jasmine, but they'll be one for trees and climbers. And uh, brands such as Miracle Grow and Osmocote, and you add so many grams per so many litres of compost. They need quite a lot of feeding then, really. I mean, well, the thing about anything in a pot, it depends entirely on you for its nutrients. And the other thing I would do, again, during the summer, I would every fortnight be giving it some liquid feed. And again, it could be a tomato feed or uh, something like, again, another brand name, uh, uh, Miracle Grow General Purpose. But they say, very important, yeah, things in containers, they depend entirely on what is given to them. They can't send out roots to access it. But I say, I'm going to print off our RHS web okay, profile on jasmines with a bit more detail. The RHS advisory team. Remember, RHS members can contact the team by phone, email or letter for free help with any gardening queries. If you'd like details on how you can become a member of the RHS, just go to rhs.org.uk slash join. I'm Sean Thomas and you're listening to the RHS Gardening Podcast. RHS Flower Shows are fantastic places to choose and buy seasonal plants and draw on the passion and knowledge of some of the UK's top nurseries. Back in the Lindley Hall in London, we spoke to specialist growers to find out their suggestions on what seasonal jobs gardeners should be tackling now. Uh, my name's Martin Flint. I'm from a company called Chrysanthemums Direct, and we're based in Nutsford in Cheshire. Um, as far as chrysanthemums are concerned, at this time of year, people would be taking cuttings um, from the stools that they've overwintered with, you know, from last year's plants. Um, cuttings at this time of year will root in about 14 days in a, in a warm greenhouse, and this will give you flower in, in the autumn. Uh, the cutting you take as a soft cutting, uh, two or three inches long, dipped in a little bit of um, hormone rooting powder, then kept in a reasonably warm environment with a, maybe a plastic bag over the top of the pot or in a propagator. And as I say, they'll root in about 14, 15 days at this time of year. My name's Steve Hickman, and uh, me and my wife run Hoyland Plant Centre in South Yorkshire. We specialise in uh, Agathanthus and Tulbagia and we exhibit on uh, most of the flower shows up and down the country. Uh, people who are growing agapanthus already, uh, if they're in your borders, what you should be doing is uh, taking the mulch off if the wind and the birds haven't already done so, uh, check to make sure the growth is coming up nicely, and start mixing your high potash feed and giving them a regular feed every three to four weeks if they're large clumps and every two to three weeks if they're smaller clumps. 
And if you grow an agapanthus in patio pots, then they should have been kept dry over winter and you should be bringing them out of your greenhouses and your polythene tunnels or your sheds and your garages, cleaning them up and starting to water them well and again, starting to feed with a high potash feed. The high potash feed stimulates the roots, uh, it gets the rhizomes uh, really motivated, you get better flowers, more flowers, better intensity of the blues and obviously if you're feeding them the correct feed, the nice and strong plants and a good strong plant will get through winter a lot easier than a plant fed on the wrong feed. Especially if you feed agapanthus uh, high nitrogen and they'll get soft leaves, they'll not flower, they'll be soft when they get into winter and that's when they are severely damaged by the frost. So a high potash and you can't go wrong. Hi, my name is Marcel Floyd. The name of the company is Floyd's Climbers and Climbers and we specialise in climbers and climbers and we're based down in Wiltshire. Uh, this time of year on the nursery, we're starting to top dress all our clematis. Sulfate of potash is fantastic. You can use that out in your garden now. And also, this is a very good time of year to watch out for the slugs and snails as the ground's starting to warm up. So if you want to go organic, use porridge oats. Quakers is always the best. Sprinkling around the base of the plants. So when the slugs go to eat your lovely shoots, they gorge on the oats, it dries them out, and they die a happy death rather than a sad death. I'm Richard Hyde from HW Hyde & Son. We specialise in lilies and we do tulips also, but the main crop is lilies. In the nursery in this moment, we are obviously growing all the lilies for shows later in the year. The main thing this time of year, keep a look out for the lily beetles. It's lovely warm weather, this will bring them out. Bright red ladybird with no spots. We pick them off, we do it all organically. You can spray, we just pick them off and crush them. You can find more gardening tips and guides to seasonal jobs in the garden on the RHS website, rhs.org.uk slash gardening. If you've been inspired to come and visit an RHS flower show, there are several to choose from throughout the year and around the UK. So what is there to see this year? Here's Jenny Jenner from the RHS shows team with some suggestions of highlights gardeners must see in 2014. Well, spring is truly here as I speak, and we hope that orchid admirers among you will join us for the RHS Orchid and Botanical Art Show, which runs from the 11th and 12th of April, with an exclusive preview evening on the 10th of April. The show will feature a spectacular array of exotic orchids from specialist growers and plant hunters from around the world in the Lawrence Hall, and a display of unseen work from some of the world's best botanical artists in the Lindley Hall, as well as a pop-up studio with painters and printmakers talking about their work. Visitors can learn about the extraordinary history of orchids, wonder at their unique beauty and buy some highly collectible and new species. There will also be talks on orchid culture in the Lawrence Hall, plus potting demonstrations organised by the Orchid Society of Great Britain. A British Orchid Council judging symposium on Saturday in the Conference Centre will include a talk by Bill Thorns, an orchid grower from Florida, and this will be open to all those who are interested. Joint show and Bill Thorne's lecture tickets are available to purchase through our website and also available for the exclusive preview evening when visitors can be the first to experience all the show has to offer in this special after-hours event. Following on in April is the RHS London Alpine Garden Show, which is a one-day event on the 27th of April, which will offer a wide range of alpines from hookahs to hardy hellebores. We hope that you can join us for a rare opportunity to see a stunning collection of alpine plants in this new one-day show. Come along to take advantage of expert advice from alpine growers, watch hands-on demonstrations and browse and buy from the best alpine nurseries and suppliers. 
The show has been developed in close consultation with the Alpine Garden Society and AGS members will be exhibiting and also on hand to offer advance at this comprehensive Alpine plant fair with a wide range of unusual plants available to buy. New to the RHS show's calendar for 2014 are our RHS London Secret Garden Sundays, which will take place on the first Sunday of every month from April to September, with a special Christmas special on the 2nd of November. Combining local independent food producers with everything you need to grow your own, this one-day event promises to get you growing, eating and celebrating the best of seasonal British produce. For those looking for handy hints and tips, there will be gardening experts on hand providing advice, cooking demonstrations, seasonal tips from top florists and gardening and craft workshops. RHS Flower Show Cardiff also takes place from the 11th of April and is the first of our outdoor events welcoming spring with a colourful riot of floral displays to the beautiful setting of Butte Park near Cardiff Castle. This year is a special year for the show as we celebrate its 10th year anniversary and at the heart of this celebration are our 10-year Twin City Show Gardens involving three different gold medal winning designers representing three gardens from Cardiff's Twin Cities. Cardiff truly is a day out for all the family, with a programme of events happening in our family area, including seed sowing, storytelling, fossil hunting and much, much more. Don't forget the renowned school's wheelbarrow competition involving around 60 local schools and the Young School Gardener of the Year competition. Jenny Jenner. You can find more details and buy tickets to all of our shows on the RHS website. Here you can also find details of activities in the four RHS gardens. Coming up in the next fortnight, come and share in the RHS's wealth of gardening knowledge at our inspiring Spring Gardening Weekend, 12th to the 13th of April. There's family events at all gardens, so make sure you pay a visit. On 14th to the 20th of April, the four RHS gardens will be celebrating National Gardening Week, as will nurseries and venues up and down the country. Be sure to see what's on. There'll be practicals, talks and Q&A and lots more, so you'll really be spoilt for choice what to do during this exciting week. More information at nationalgardeningweek.org.uk and rhs.org.uk slash gardens. We're out of time on this edition of the RHS Gardening Podcast, sponsored by Visit Wales. We'll be back in a fortnight. Until then, remember to follow us on Twitter at the underscore RHS and like us on Facebook. For now, from me, Sean Thomas and all the podcast team, goodbye. <laughs>